0: Welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor, make sense out of the senseless, and if it's all possible, find the obvious, bury the absurd. Let's go. Welcome back to the show. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth due to this thing called the All Together Now Internet. You know, this is uh, this particular show is a, a kind of a mashup of a, of a bunch of things that have been going on this past week, plus Father's Day, which is tomorrow. And uh, it's been an interesting week here in Chicago. We had some serious weather come through about a week ago, and uh, we were on the south end of basically a tornado. So we were pretty lucky. The neighbor's tree decided to deposit some major limbs on the garage and um, just a couple blocks over houses with their roofs removed without permission from the owner. Uh, But all in all it was uh, it was another one of those wake-up calls where first and foremost the weather always wins. We can sit and go back and forth about climate change you know and as Voltaire said men argue nature acts and uh sometimes think it's acts axc not act because the hammer gets dropped and we're underneath all of that so on one level i find it truly fascinating that when we are humbled before nature as we are many times uh on this planet that we don't understand that we are not running the system that we're only a part of it a very very small part of it even though there's a lot of us on the planet it's uh, Nature always wins. It will have its way. And the more we mess around with things, we don't know 100%. It's like Frankenstein, right? Frankenstein thought it was a great idea to create a monster, I'm right? going to put all these pieces together and play God. Well, sometimes it doesn't work out the way you think it should. Got some pretty good movies though back in the day, but the bottom line is we're messing around with stuff we don't totally know about. With all our scientific knowledge and ability and all the stuff that goes along with it and the technology, the bottom line is uh, nature wins and it will win and we're messing around with the thermostat of the planet and basically we're all about 8 10 or 11 years old somewhere in there that nice cuz you know when you read the headlines or you look at the headlines i don't know if anybody reads them anymore but you hear the headlines you start to see that it's really adolescent behavior in grown-ups for the most part so much of what runs through uh, my ears on a, on a somewhat regular basis i can't avoid the news something always catches me and you know th- these hearings are going on about January 6th and who said who and who was calling who names and it's just it's violent because there's violence involved but the impetus or the the actionary pieces are are adolescent if you don't like something we it sometimes you got to grow up and i find all of it the more i pull back and further away from it, i get the clearer it all gets and the less i want to be any part of it because life is too short And by the way, in full disclosure, you may hear some sounds, extracurricular sounds on this show. It's just too nice of a day to shut everything down and and, kind of go the soundproof route in the studio. So you may hear some morning doves somewhere. They're still removing branches not far away from here. You may hear some of the equipment doing that, but I figure I'm gonna leave it all open and go raw here. We'll go right out of the gate raw. But back to this whole thing about uh, human behavior and things like that. I have to keep in mind, and I and I do this on a somewhat regular basis, and I make it part of almost every show I do, uh, whether it's this program or tomorrow, as, as uh, many of you know, I do a show with Jennifer Weigel on Sundays at noon Chicago time. It airs in Washington, D.C. on WCRW 1190. It's also online at www.newworldradio.com, so you can go online and click in at noon, and there's Jennifer and I yakking away at doing things. and. I know tomorrow we're going to be talking about our dads, among other things, but it's all about perspective, the whole shoot and match. And so it's like, to me, if you slide everything under a microscope, you lose that perspective. And everything that goes on in the world seems to be, because of the amount of technology we have and the outlets we have and the immediacy of it, it's all under a microscope all the time. And I think that distorts things to a greater or lesser degree. So... Um, I'm starting to use the telescope rather than a microscope. I want to see, I distance myself from a lot of this stuff, mostly because there's not a damn thing I can do about it except get pissed off across the board. So I think we need to find places and spaces and people where we can remove ourselves from that a little bit. And to that end, I had a great time yesterday at an open house at Belding Grammar School where I graduated back in June of 1973. Basically a tadpole at that point, human-like tadpole. I look at the pictures, I can't even believe it's me. But we had an open house there and it was, um, I'm still processing it. I've not been back to that school in that capacity in 49 years. So there's the first part, right? Next year in 2023, it will be 50 years, half a century that I graduated from grammar school and my mind can't grasp that. Walking in there, realizing that yesterday, my mind's like, does not compute, does not compute. Will Robinson does not compute. And I kind of was in a haze after that. I I mean, it was great. There's some folks that I saw that were there and my friend Kim who put the whole thing on and Mr. Wright, who's the gym teacher. His first year there was my last year there. So it kind of overlapped a little bit. And he looks fantastic at 82. Amazing. But this bittersweet feeling would not leave me. I was wandering the halls a little bit. There was probably 40 people throughout the building. Uh, some changes, they've put an elevator in and they've obviously have handicap access at this point now. But the, the, the feeling, the walls are permeated with so many memories. And I kind of wandered, as I said, it just meandering is also another good word. I, the guy says, you know, you really got to take the elevator up to the third floor. Oh boy, it's three flights of stairs and then walk down and try to get the whole effect of the thing. So I did that. I rode the elevator up, which was weird. I mean, the school's not that big and I must've went up and down those three flights of stairs a thousand times in the seven years that I was there. I came there in 1966. And um, when, the, when the elevator doors opened, the, there was nobody on the third floor except me. The doors open and there's this expansive, highly polished hallway, shining in the sun at four o'clock in the afternoon and i just stepped back into i don't know pick a year 68 69 70 71. it was like an overwhelming feeling it was a 306 i think maybe and that was mrs depago's room who you either loved her or you hated her i don't remember everything she taught but i know she taught music and um i thought she was formidable let's just put it that way one look from mrs d could melt steel across that hallway from that room was Mrs. Shea, who I adored. Um, I got to sit in the first seat in the front row right next to this big uh, windows that the CPS, the Chicago Public Schools, had. You know, they're 17 feet wide, 19 feet high. You needed a big pole to lift them up and down, and the windows would be open in the summertime like now, and it was just uh, great, great, great memories. A little further down the hallway was where my eighth grade room was with Mr. Andler, who gave me my love is science. I mean, I, I realized that over the years, and it was confirmed yesterday. The room now is like a multimedia room. There's no classes in there, I don't think. And the door was locked. I couldn't get in, but I kind of peeked in the window a little bit. And I, man, it was like peeking into yesterday. I guess that's what these open houses and reunions and tours are all about, right? And I sat there thinking about how much I learned about basic science then, and that basic science hasn't changed just because I've gotten older. And uh Mr. Andler was quite a guy, he, he just had, he was the kind of guy like, I think school was from nine to three. You got home for an hour of lunch or you had lunch for an hour, you can go home or not. Uh, so noon to one was a lunch hour and then at three o'clock you're out. So by about two thirty, twenty 20 minutes to three, somebody always would ask Mr. Andler to say like, tell us a story or, now this is in eighth grade. It wasn't like telling, you know, bedtime stories, but he would always have something that's gone on in his life that he would share, which would kill the last 30 minutes or so of school. And we kind of worked him into that corner. He was a great guy. And then a little further down the hallway, Mr. Bell's room and Mr. Zielinski's room and God Zeke. Everybody knew Zeke is the guy who chewed paper clips and he could fling them. Bing, he'd sit there in class and cut his fingernails at the desk. I mean this guy was a piece of work. And I I, I lingered on the third floor for quite a while just soaking it up. Colors have changed. There's more stuff laying out. You know, I mean, the rooms are, are different to some greater or less degree, but the basic bones of the school are of course the same. And, uh, Hiram H. Belding Grammar School. Mm. And then I went down to the second floor, kind of did the same thing. I didn't spend, uh, If I know I spent time in there because as you go up on the grades, and you, the older you get, the higher up in the building you go, I think. And, um, uh, Second grade, of course, the middle years. And then I got down to where my kindergarten room was, or my first grade room was, I should say, because as I mentioned, I came there in 1966. I spent one year at a different school till we moved there. And to walk into that room was a freaking bell ringer for me, because that's the room that I, you know, this is where you go in and you sit down and lay down and take a nap and have milk and cookies and stuff like that, as I recall. And then the principal's office and um, the ghost of Mr. Osuch floating through there, no doubt for many of us. And then finally into the auditorium, which to me was like the capstone of the whole drill. Matter of fact, as we're doing the show, I'm, I'm looking at a picture of the auditorium. Now, when you're a kid, this these are cavernous spaces. Of course, it looks a lot smaller now, and all the pictures of the presidents are gone. And there's a, a wheelchair lift in the corner, um, you know, to for that purpose. And and that was never there, but the basic kind of burgundy and Faded gold uh, bunting is still up, and the huge heavy curtains, and the seats are all the same. They've removed some up front for wheelchair access, but the basics are all there. And the paint's still chipping and stuff. And man, I walked into that auditorium, and it just washed on me. How many concerts we did in there? How many plays were done in there? Um, th- especially at Christmas. And and the, the thing I remembered most is being upstairs in the balcony of this, and this is where the picture was taken, I'm looking at too, looking down onto the main floor, but this little balcony up there was such a big deal to go up, and I I had this instant flashback of my mom and dad and I and my sister walking from our house, which is a block away from the school, and uh, going to a Christmas concert, you know, in the 60s, I guess, I don't know when it would have been exactly, and sitting up there, and the lights would go down, and the stage light, those red and green and blue lights would pop up out of the floor and kids were singing Christmas carols and all that kind of stuff. And the, the, the most vivid memory I have is of a kid named Jimmy Burnett. I don't know whatever happened to Jimmy Burnett, um, but he's unforgettable to me. He did Oh Holy Night a cappella. And, and it, it, it it to this day, it reverberates through me. Every Christmas when I hear that song, I think of Jimmy Brennan, I think of sitting in those little seats up in the balcony at uh, Belding School. So needless to say, yesterday was quite a uh, capstone to some degree, but also a milestone kind of thing that I guess I'm really getting older. I guess this is really happening. I mean, when you start thinking you've been out of grammar school for half a century, I mean, shit's getting real, you know what I'm saying? And I know that some of you are listening are much younger than me and some of you listening are much older than me. And so you kind of, if you're younger than me, you're headed this way. And if you're older than me, you've already been here. And to me, those things are, uh, they're profound. They mark the time of our lives. And these places, spaces, and people are kind of the yard markers for that for me. So after that, I walked outside and, and just stood staring at this playground that was home for thousands of kids over the years. When I was there, it was uh, totally non-compliant to any kind of uh, (laughs) lawsuits, but nobody cared. If you got hurt, you just got it taken care of. You didn't sue people, you just got hurt. It was okay. And yeah, we got picked on and we picked on each other, but we built character out of that and we stood up for each other even when we didn't want to sometimes. But the memories from that place just flooded again. It was really, really overwhelming to me. I mean, uh, I was not prepared for that. And so connected to all of that, of course is my dad because I must have had six or seven people from that tour that open house come up and see my name and go oh my gosh I remember the haunted house that your dad had every year when four or five six people do that you know I, I that really warmed me and my dad had many faces you know he was a, a son he was of course a father he was a banker he was a friend to many people and um He's Dracula for the most part from, you know, late September through October 31st. And to know he enjoyed that so much and to know he's remembered that way by so many, that just really, really made my day. We started talking about how it all started. And, and my dad, when he was a kid, uh, loved all the horror movies and stuff, grew up in the fifties, sci-fi, stuff like that. And, uh, had built little, you know, spook houses and stuff when he was younger. And when he bought this massive house at 4200 Berto Street in Chicago, this big Victorian type house. One of the reasons my mom said is because the basement and the basement was perfect to build a haunted house. Now the upper levels were pretty good too. We had a nice fireplace and my sister and I had our own rooms on the third floor and it was, you know, it was great. But the basement was the selling point. And she said he walked in, there was nothing down there. And he thought, boy, could I build some some serious shit down here? So that's why he bought the house. I believe in 1966, he paid about 18 grand for the place. And the last time it sold was about $3.4 million. Fascinating to me. And you wonder about inflation, how things change. We do it to ourselves, but that's a whole different show. And I have such vivid memories of him uh working on that haunted house. Couldn't wait to get home from school, whether it was grammar school or high school, to see what my cousins and my dad had built. And every year it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, after about five years of this at that house, somebody from the Tribune of the Sun-Times, I don't recall which newspaper in Chicago, came out and did a story. Why are all these people waiting in line two blocks to go into this guy's basement? and uh he that was it you might as well give him a you know an Oscar academy award for it because it was he never did it for that reason but it got recognized and that was really important to him and they you know held back on nothing back then long before all these things that are going on now you know where you got to pay 40 bucks to get in to get the shit scared out of your state-filled prisons haunted you with know, all these these high-end haunted houses what my dad was doing in the 60s and 70s, and maybe one other one in the Chicago area called Amlings was a big deal. That was about it. There wasn't a lot of that going on. It became a business later. And they would take cardboard boxes and build these mazes. And the The basement wasn't that big, but because of the mazes, it felt like you were walking forever. Uh, but the, so many memories. And the, the big one was the, the uh, laboratory. The first thing you walked into, my dad was... You know, he wasn't dressed like Count Dracula. He was Count Dracula. My mom made sure of that. He actually went to his dentist and had fangs made. I mean, who does that? My dad did that. And my mom would get the bone white makeup on his face and the black under the eyes. And she took some old curtains that were in my room once that were black. I don't know. I think I had black curtains just to keep out, the, the, the sun out because we were facing the, uh, the east. And it would kind of wake you up early if you get my drift, which is probably the reason I get up at 5 o'clock most days. And she made a cape out of that curtain for him. It was just, it's just uh, unbelievable. And when you walked in, there was Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster. And then various, you know, ghouls, demons, and other assorted uh, scary things in the, all the maze. And at the end, you got to where the werewolf was. Or the wolfman. There is a difference. Go look it up. Where the werewolf was. And it was my cousin Rich, the Sarge, who just came back from Vietnam And needed something to do. And so he became the werewolf. And he did the same thing. You know, the spirit gum on the face and the hair. And I'm going to take him two hours to get ready for, you know, the the, the whole wolfy thing. And then the best part was he was up against the corner. And they had these plastic chains on his wrist. And, of course, he looked like he's chained up to the wall. He won't get you. Wrong. He would break the chains easily, come out and scare the shit out of people. Up the stairs, they go into the house. This went on for 20 years. So I'm not surprised that people remember that. And waiting in line whether it's pouring rain or nice out. And Halloween was a serious event at our place. And so much so that, you know, these years later, it, I have in my studio here, I, I get all kind of Halloween stuff. And, and uh, it's just, a, it's a holdover. As a matter of fact, years after my dad had passed, I went back to that house where we lived. It's now been sold two or three times. And I went there on Halloween, probably in 2008, somewhere around there and knocked on the door at Halloween. The guy's like, you're a little big for a uh, trick or treat, aren't you son? I'm like, you know, told him about the house. He knew because this, you know, neighbors had talked about this, this Halloween thing. And so he let me come into the house and went to the basement and sure enough, up in the rafters in the back corner of this little tool shed that was built into the, into the basement, there was still some paperwork there from the haunted house. And so I grabbed that and I have that. And it's, it's uh, it's very, very cool. So, you know, you go through your life and my dad uh, i don't think ever thought he'd be known as <laughs> the guy that scared everybody at halloween he just did it cuz he enjoyed it and decades after he's been gone you know to hear people talk about it just was uh, was a very good thing you know whenever i get around fathers day i don't think i mean i'm a dad i have two kids they're grown they're in their 30s and doing well and love them and but they don't need me like I need them. The roles have reversed. You know, when, it was, when, I, when they were little, they needed me and I was busy and doing my thing and, you know, uh, I needed them and took care of them and, and provided for them, but now it's different because they don't need me in the way they used to. And it always dawns on me, especially on Father's Day, that m- my kids have never known their life without me, but I know my life without them before they got here, right? But I know my life without my father and mother. They don't know that yet. And that's where the most of the growth has come for me after my folks passed away. And I always think about the things my dad told me. The longer he's been gone, the more sense they make while he was here when he said them. It's, it's just again it goes back to this perspective thing. So interesting guy, you know? I mean, like everybody went through the ringer and 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 came out the other side and did the best he could with what he had. And I think the the biggest challenge I've ever had with my dad. And I I think I'm saying this for a couple reasons. One is, for years I didn't talk about it. And if I can talk about it and somebody listening gets value from it, then it's worth me talking about it. Uh, My mom was an alcoholic. And she was an alcoholic in the way that, you know, uh, it got worse over time, not better. Because that's how alcoholism is. And you always, at least when I was a kid, thought it might just get better somehow. And even though they were you know they provided, and we never went hungry and uh, there was no nothing like beatings or anything like that, no major violence, it was very debilitating to see this disintegration of my mom and dad. My dad was her enabler. He made sure her drink was never half empty. And I think he did it because it made her happy, even though it was not the best way to be happy. And what took me years uh, to wrangle with was thinking he should be different than he was that he should be somehow perfect because i th- that's what you see your parent. As a kid, you want him to be perfect and you realize at some point, at least I did, that he's just as flawed as I am. And when I came to that realization, it was a huge weight off me and him. And he was gone uh, in 2002, my mom died in 97. So they've been gone quite a while. And it's been a constant processing. And I'll run into something or see something of his. My, my studio, I have pictures and other artifacts and trinkets and things that were his and my mom's. And I think of those lessons. And to me, so much of life is about evolving past where you used to be. And my mom and dad, you know, they never had any big, deep discussions with myself or my sister that I know of about life and how to go through it and make it work and deal with things. And because they didn't do that, I made sure that I had those questions and answers and conversations with my kids because I didn't have it and I needed it. But my mom and dad, could, it's like asking them to speak Chinese. They couldn't do it because they don't have it. So asking people to give you something they don't have, that's on me, not them. But thinking they should do it just because I was a kid, that's, that's a big gap to fill. So it took me a long time to get to the point where I was, oh my gosh, he's just a guy doing the best he can. I may not like it. I may not agree with it. I don't have to support it. But that's the deal. And expectation and reality rarely line up expecting people, places, and spaces to be different than they are just because you don't like it or understand it, it never works. But when you get to the reality of a situation, and this is how it is, you have better opportunities to respond instead of just react. And it took me a long time to get there because of the emotions that are involved around all those type of things. But on the upside of all that, he was a great guy. You know, when, when, when it was great, it was great. And I have such great memories and fond memories of him. And one of the things yesterday was being in the uh, the uh, gymnasium at Belding, and I didn't think so much of being in there for gym, which happened, of course, but going in there for the science fairs, which was a huge deal. It was at nighttime. To go back into school at night? Oh, my God, that was a big deal. And one year, my dad and I built, you know, the volcano with the baking soda that comes out, and I got into the science fair. I mean, you had to, like, apply to be in have a project and they voted on it. And I think I won a little ribbon or something like that. But it was such it was like another one of those big deals. It's something my dad and I did together. And there weren't a lot of things we did together. And he worked a lot, but that's how the times were. He wasn't very athletic. We didn't go out and throw the ball in the yard and things, but he came to every game that I, you know, that I played in football for sure on the weekends uh, at high school and, and in college. So all of this to me is uh, is in a big pile. I'm fumbling a bit with my words. I keep thinking I'm really free-forming it here today because they're not all, there's no clear-cut path. But my mortality comes more and more into view the older I get. And I realize how much water's already under the bridge. I'll be 64 in December and that whole idea of 50 years have gone by since grammar school. It's one thing for high school because I see a lot of those folks all the time. We do a a fair amount of involvement with the Alumni Association at my high school. So I, I'm in touch with them a bit. But going back previous to that, never did it. And to see some people, as a matter of fact, I think it was the only one from my class of 73 that was there. Um, it was just kind of lonely. It was like, what what happened here? Where, how many years? 50 years? No, that's not possible. It is. And so while I am cautiously optimistic about the future of all things. The big takeaway from yesterday was about that whole thing I brought up before about microscopes and telescopes. When I was in the prime of it there at Belding, which would have been 66 to 73 those years, guess what was going on in the world at that time? Do you anybody want to guess? Yeah, it was the Vietnam War. As I mentioned, my cousin the Sarge came back. He actually did two tours, highly decorated marine and um Still with us. so I'm, I'm glad for that. But the Vietnam War was ramping up and ramping down in the same years I was at Belding. I had zero knowledge of it because I didn't pay any attention to it. Why would I? I was a kid. I do have memories of the 68 Democratic National Convention for a lot of different reasons and stuff I happen to see on TV. I remember when the body bags were first shown on the news and my mom was crying. All those, bo- And we were worried about the Sarge you know, coming home and I remember those things, and yet in my insular circle that I was living, walking a block and a half from our house on Berto, around the corner down the street to Belding, that was my entire world. Everything was in, inside this dome, and it was safe there, and there was nothing going on that was threatening there. It was, and it was, you know, outside of missing homework. Uh, There wasn't a lot of uh, difficulty, you know, some stuff with my folks, as I mentioned, but the bigger picture was not there. There was no bigger picture. That was as far as my consciousness could take me. And that's what I got to remember today, that so much of what's going on in the world isn't any worse than it was back then. I have these conversations with people all the time. It's not an argument. It's, It's a point for point kind of thing. I get that we're in the shits, but I also get we've always been in the shits. And it's all depending on where you place yourself in the shit that you can see it or smell it or not. And so from 66 to 73 at Belding Grammar School, I was not in it. I was on the playground and I was playing basketball. And I mean, it life was great for the most part. It was fant- ice skating, hockey, horseshoes. It, when it got real hot, we'd take our shirts off and cover the sewers in the playground. And engine number 69 for the Chicago Fire Department come over and unload from the fire hydrant and flood the place, and we'd swim around. It was like our own pool. We had Watermelon Day. The fun fair, the fun fair was the highlight of our lives. And at the same time, bombs were dropping in Vietnam. So, if anything else, it's the one leverage point that I still have when I hear about the January 6th hearings, which isn't any different than the Watergate thing, which is, go back to the Nuremberg trials. I mean, there's always something going on. And what's most difficult is as I hear people talk about how bad things are. Then read a history book and realize it may not be bad. Gas prices are through the roof, as if this was the first time that ever happened. As if it was the first time that ever happened. So as a species, I think in so many ways, we're a little bit frail with these things. We need to Get out of that 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old adolescent mindset of look what happened to me and look at all these terrible things going on and and arguing over stuff, all the while knowing that it's been 50 years since you got out of grammar school and at any day you could be done. And that to me is the, the whole crux of it. Perspective. Perspective, perspective, perspective. Sitting in one of those chairs in the auditorium, I could actually fit in two of them probably now because that's a whole other story. But... Uh, I realized that um, in the half century since I walked out of that school, I have come so far, and yet right back there in a circle to some degree. I mean, the, the things I imagined for myself as a young kid, some of it's come so vibrantly true, I can't even believe it. And I don't know how it happened. I'm just glad that it did. I'm, let me, case in point, I think there's a certain bit of magic in life if you see it that way. You know, I, I, the show that I also do on Sundays in Washington is the Dow of music. I get a chance to play digital disc jockey for an hour and I love it. I just great time playing music and talking about the artists and things. And, um, and all of that has come out of somewhere. I mean, I didn't grow up thinking, gee, I want to be on the radio and I've ended up on the radio for 25 years and working with Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Oz and building satellite networks and, and my own radio show. And I don't know where all that came from except for the fact that I knew that I wanted to lend my voice to the world and add to the, the narrative that we live by or should be living by in my opinion. But I don't know how it exactly happened. I just know why. And the why is more important than the how. If you know the why for living, the how tends to take care of itself. I could have planned none of this stuff on paper. Not that smart. Best grades in school, lunch and gym. Could never planned it. I'm sitting here looking across my studio. I got a bunch of football helmets in the corner. Deacon Jones and my football helmet from college and one from high school. And in the middle, under glass is a is a signed helmet from Jerry Kramer, played for the uh, Packers in Super Bowl One and Two. 10 years in the NFL, Hall of Fame 2018, friend for 35 years. I read his book, Instant Replay, in 1968 when I was 10. I never once thought God would be great to meet this guy, but life somehow put us together. And there's an energy behind these things that make them happen. And I think that's kind of the, 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 the pixie dust in this is When there's some sort of impetus that you want to be involved in something and you just let the universe handle the details, so I talked to Jerry last week. He and his son Matt were heading back from someplace up in Idaho, and he was in the Sawtooth Mountains and giving me a, a, a roadside trip review of the mountaintops and what it would look like there. And I'm as I'm he's talking to me. Here's this man who's 86 talking to me, and I'm looking at this football helmet and I'm thinking, How does this happen? And how lucky am I and blessed am I to have had that. And there's so many more people and places and spaces. And all that became really clear yesterday, sitting in that auditorium before I was able to head outside and go to the, to the playground. to go outside and go to the playground. You know, wouldn't that be great? What if your day ended at 3 o'clock and you just got the play built, the lights went out at 9? Wouldn't that be great again? I think so. That's a whole other show of what it was like growing up at that time. And ugh. But again, the takeaway for me as I start to ramble here, and I have got a little note on my desk, no longer than 30 minutes, and I'm over, over that already, is that it's all about keeping your perspective. And the more you turn off that other stuff and turn on the stuff inside you, I think the better life looks. And no doubt that we have our challenges and changes going on, it's our time on the watch, but perspective is everything. Perspective is everything. My thanks to the Life 2.0 subscribers who allow me to uh, take the time out of my week to do this. I really, really, truly appreciate it. I hope you found some value in this. Until next time, safe travels. Happy Father's Day. Keep the faith. Adios.